0: Good morning. I want to tell you about a friend of mine named Justin. He came to a co-ed Bible study that I lead at Edinburgh University about five years ago. When he came in, he was dressed in a long black trench coat, and he smelled like cigarettes. And he came with a friend, a girl from his animation class. His heart was hard. His eyes were dim. And the topic that night was about David and, and how he fought the battles that the Lord asked him to and, and he wiped out nations and peoples and, and all kinds of people died and, and were totally annihilated. And Justin, he didn't take much break from staring at his cell phone, but when he did, he looked up at me and said, why would a guy who loves people so much kill them? And I didn't have an answer. The word covenant and Old Testament and justice from evil just didn't quite seem to fit right in that moment. At the end of the study, as I typically do, I asked for prayer requests, and students uh, shared their grandmothers were sick. Um, They needed financial provision. They, They wanted help retaining information for the test the next day. And so I wrote them on the board carefully, and Justin's request was to pray for all the kittens in the world that they would have safe homes. Not knowing completely if this was mocking my feeble attempt at Bible study or not, I wrote that on the board. And for the first time in my life, I interceded for kittens all over the world. And it was a year, a year of these Bible studies that looked a little bit like that, that Justin attended. Every week, challenging me with some question that I could not possibly answer. Every week, throwing out some prayer request that was... (laughs) borderline heretic of some way, but he came faithfully. I saw no progress, but he came faithfully. That next fall, Justin didn't return to Bible study. And and if I'm being honest with you this morning, I I was somewhat relieved. The circumstances were challenging. I, I left there every week feeling so defeated. But a few months went into the semester. I got a call on my cell phone, and it was Justin, and he said, uh, Nicole, I need help. Um, I said, "Okay." I'm thinking, what kind of theological question do you, <laughs> you know, that I can't answer? You're gonna ask me, and he said, uh, "I have a drinking problem. I, I, can't, I can't stop. I'm failing out of school. I lost my job because I haven't been showing up. I think I might even be in legal trouble. I don't know what I need, but I need help." And so, um, through a process of different things, Joel and I got him plugged into. Um, The campus has counseling and different things that he needed, alcohol rehab and things like that. And he started coming around to Bible study again. And one week he said to me after study, um, do you ever wonder why I called you? Like why why I picked you to call? And I said, yeah, I do. But I mean, I'm glad you did, but I have no idea why you picked me. And he said that the morning before, he had woke up, passed out cold, for like the 30th night in a row, he said. And he was naked in his bathtub. He had no idea how he got there. He couldn't remember anything about the night before, but in his hands, he held a black Bible that he had never, ever seen. And it was opened up to a psalm that David wrote. And he said, in that moment, I knew that God you talk about was pursuing me. You know, God sent me to that campus on a mission of mercy for Justin's life. And not just Justin's, but thousands of other students. And God is sending each of us on a mission of mercy for people like him. All over this community, this country, and this world. The scripture actually says that there are people's names written on our hearts, specific people that God has designed for us to go tell, for us to lead lovingly into the kingdom of God. It's the people who work at GE with you. It's the people that shop in your store, that, that live in your neighborhood, that the parents of the classmates of the bratty kids on your soccer team. <laughs> they're, they're the villages of people in Africa who don't have access to clean water. The, the orphanage is full of children waiting for a human touch. There are women being sold into sex trade. For those baptismal people that were up here a few minutes ago, it was someone in their life, their fiance. They're waiting. And they're waiting for us to fulfill our mission of mercy. You know, I was thinking, God didn't have to design it this way. You know, he could have created, like, a plan to spread his message that involved, like, the sky breaking open and fiery billows of smoke riding in the clouds. It's your day, I don't know, something like that. Or like he could have made us robots that have to follow a certain uh, plan or we self-destruct, like some crazy sci-fi movie. I don't know, I don't know, but he chose, it was his idea to use each other, to use the community of believers to spread the message of, of God's grace and goodness to all of humanity across all generations. It was his idea to make this beautiful promise of life be available through the communication of one changed life to the next. God doesn't need us to communicate his message. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. Yet God chooses us. He understands the human heart, and he chooses to make this his system. So if you are a follower of Christ, you are on a mission you're on a mission of mercy, and it starts now. So, why is this mission so important to God? Why, why does He make it such a priority? Why did He choose to spread it this way? Well, what could be His motive? In Luke 19:10, it says, "This for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost." It's like Jesus' whole life sentence, whole life purpose, summed up into one sentence. He came to seek and save the lost. That's what he did. The largest concern of the heart of God is those who don't know him. A lot of things concern God. Little tiny details of our life concern God. I think even kittens could concern God. But the biggest, the largest thing on the heart of God is people that don't know him. It is so clear. In Matthew 9, this is written about Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Lostness didn't move Jesus to frustration, didn't move him to anger, it moved him to tears. When we criticize and judge people for making bad choices or not understanding the ways of God, we're not being like Jesus. Jesus wept over his children in the scripture. He he was more than once, he was grieved. In Romans 9, Paul says the same thing. Paul is in anguish over the lost people. It's it's as if Paul got so close to Christ that um, he was infected by Jesus' passion for those who didn't know him. And I believe when we get so close to God, our hearts will start wanting the same thing. And when that happens, we will be transformed in every way. All our human relationships will be turned around. Our love for our family, our love for strangers, our love for foreigners. Jesus deeply cared for individuals. Um, Luke 23 tells of this really brief, yet really significant encounter with a thief on the cross. Just before Jesus commits himself to God, Christ rescues that thief from eternal hell. So so think of this, he's in the final moments of life, the, the final moments he's ever gonna live on earth. He's hanging on a cross in horrific, awful pain, And you know what he's thinking about? Gosh, I love this guy here next to me so much. I'm gonna take this opportunity, every single opportunity, because I am so grieved that he doesn't love me yet. And he ushers that thief into the kingdom of God. He came to seek and save the lost. He never got distracted from that. He was on a mission of mercy. Christ repeatedly called for people to come to him in faith. Uh, He acted publicly. There's lots of examples. Um, everywhere in the Scripture, but specifically in the Book of John, in chapters six, eight, and ten, he says, "I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He believes. He who believes in me shall never thirst." He says, "I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life." He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He is pulling every metaphor out that he can possibly explain. Let me take everything in your life that you understand and let me build it around this understanding that I've come to seek and save the lost. This is it. I'll explain it to you as many ways as you want, but here's my point. And not only did Jesus go around telling people, hey, in public, this is what I'm here to do. He also acted personally. He brought Philip, Matthew, Peter, and Andrew all to faith just by saying, follow me. He met a woman at a well, brought her to salvation. He found Zacchaeus, a tax collector. He led him to a confession of sin, repentance, and faith. He taught Nicodemus about the new birth. He he taught blind Bartimaeus to believe in him. In Mark 5, Jesus met a demon-possessed man, and he sent the demons into a herd of swine, which hurried into the sea and drowned. And the man wanted to go with Jesus, but the Lord wanted him to stay as his witness. So here we are. And if we want to be like Jesus, we need to continue explaining to people publicly and privately and personally who Christ is and the relationship he desires to have with them. Jesus said, I learned your language. I took your culture. I died your death, and now I'm sending you. John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I'm sending you on a mission of mercy. Now, many of you know, um, Joel and I have a four-year-old named Cecily, and we're expecting another girl in November. So there'll be a lot of girls in the house. Um, And if you came to me after service today and you said, boy, Nicole, I heard Cecily loves the zoo, which she does. Can I take her there after church? I would first make sure you're a responsible human being. <laughs> you know, all those things moms do, background check, fingerprints, metal detector, you know. And then, I would give you very specific instructions on how to take care of her. Like sometimes you have to ask her if she has to go to the bathroom because she doesn't remember. She's still four. So you have to ask her. And sometimes she gets so excited she unbuckles her seatbelt before you get there. So you have to kind of watch in the rearview mirror and be like, "Not yet. Not, you know, don't unbuckle yet. We got to park." And um, I would ask you, what time will you be back? So I can make sure I'm, you know, I'm there. Um, She needs a nap or she gets crabby like her dad. So make sure that happens. And I would ask you all these things because I love her. She is mine. If you do anything to hurt her, I will hurt you. (laughs) Right? All the moms in the room and dads. She's my baby. Protect her. Keep her safe. Don't lose her. And what, and what if, at the end of the day, when the zoo closed, you came back to me and you said, hey, oh, we had a great time. It was awesome. She didn't want to come home. So I left her there. <sighs> oh. I told her what time we were leaving, uh, but she didn't listen. I mean, I told her to meet me at the gate at 5, specifically. Um... <sighs> Your kid can't tell time, you know? She never showed. I, I called her name. I even called her name, Nicole. I even said, Cecily, where are you? And, and she wasn't there, so I left. <laughs> you know, God gives us this great and awesome privilege in the same way. And he sends people into our lives, his children, his babies, and he says, Take care of this one. This one's mine. This one's precious to me. Don't lose this one because I want them to come home. Take care of him while he's here. And you know what? Sometimes we say, well, I I told him what time church was, but I guess he just wasn't interested. Um, I called him once. It will be really awkward if I ask again. So I'm done doing that. They know what I believe. They can ask me for more information. I don't want to get a bad reputation for always talking about Jesus. And God says to us, This is the biggest thing on my heart. For better or for worse, I want you to fight for the people in your lives no matter what it takes because the stakes are way too high not to. In Chi Alpha, we often, I'll pen the phrase, don't leave Cecily at the zoo. And they know what that means. That they, whether it's awkward or not, they got to call that person again because it's their eternity we're dealing with, not just a cool church service. Penn Gillette is an American illusionist. He's a magician. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of him. Uh, he's a best-selling author. He has a daughter named Moxie Crimefighter. What do you think, Joel? I'm thinking that could be a possibility for the new baby. Moxie fighter Schreiber. And a son um, named Zoltan. He's an atheist. He's a very, he, he is very um, vocal about it. He's a libertarian. He's a skeptic. In fact, in January of 07, he publicly denied the existence of the Holy Spirit. His car's license plate reads godless. He's very, very vocal. And after a magic show, one of his magic shows, a man approached him with a Gideon Bible. And I want you to listen to what Gillette says about it.
1: I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I can home from the show. And at the end of the show, as I've mentioned before, we go out and we uh, we talk to folks and you know sign an occasional autograph and shake hands and so on. And there was one guy waiting over to the side in the um, what I call the hover position after I was all done. Big guy, probably about my age. Big guy, and um, he had been the. Um, the guy who has, uh, picks the joke during our psychic comedian section of the show. Uh, so we had the props from that in his hand because we'd give those away. He had the, the joke book and the, and the envelope and the paper and stuff. If you haven't seen the live show, I, uh, it's not worth explaining. But he had props from the show that we'd given him from the night before. Uh, he wasn't the guy that night. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show, and uh, uh, I saw the show, and I liked it, I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language, and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff, no reason to go into it, but he said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you, and he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought I, it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. uh, How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible which had written in it a little note to me uh, not very personal but just you know like to show and so on and then like five phone numbers for him and an email address if I wanted to get in touch now I know there's no God and one polite person living his life right doesn't change that uh, but I'll tell you he was a very 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 good man and uh, That's really important. And with that kind of goodness, uh, it's okay to have that deep of a disagreement. I still think that religion does a lot of bad stuff, but man, that was a good man who gave me that book. That's all I wanted to say.
0: How much do you have to hate someone to believe there's eternal life and not tell them? Even this atheist understood that we are on a mission of mercy. Sharing our faith isn't always easy. Um, it involves risk. Some of you are probably saying, okay, it's, it's not that simple. I'm not in full-time ministry. I, my situation is complicated. I'm, I'm a teacher who can't pray at school, or um, my family has really deep Muslim roots, or I've hurt people in my life so badly. Why would they ever listen to me? You know, Jesus demonstrated the way we must live and proclaim his message, and it's not through power and riches and eloquent language and perfect metaphors, but it's in weakness and in loss. It's not through fame and applause of the world, but often in shame, and it's not always in comfort and ease, but it's with our hearts focused on the city to come. Jesus himself bore reproach, mockery, loss of friendship, loss of opportunity in order to proclaim his father's plan of rescue. The good news is is that his plan goes forward as we learn to embrace Christ's method of sharing in our weakness. As we mess up, as we don't have it all right all the time, his message still goes forward because that's his plan. And even in our apparent defeats, like Christ's, They can become scenes for kingdom victory. I believe God chose this way of evangelism above every other because he knew in the process that it would change us too. And I believe that Jesus' intention is to see us change. He loves and cares for us so deeply, each of us, that in his magnificent, wise plan, he knew that he would bring life change to our hard, our hard hearts as we shared our stories with each other. There's something about it. There's something about re-remembering um, the power of Jesus and what he did in each of our lives that as we share that with each other, that changes who we are too. In Luke 9, Jesus sends his 12 disciples out on their first missions trip. And this was before many of them had even a solid understanding of who Jesus was. Sometimes I think we think they were like, had their like 12 meetings, learned their skits. You know what I mean? Like they were all prepared, ready to go. All right, I know exactly what we're doing. But Peter's confession of Christ doesn't occur until later in chapter 9, after Christ had sent them out. God said, go. I'm standing on a mission of mercy because I know it's going to change other people, and I know it's going to change you too. It even shows in the scripture that um, the disciples, they went out, they fed the 5,000 with breads and loaves, and then they went fishing. And kind of in my mind's eye, I imagine like them getting in the boat, like cheering, like, look at that miracle that Jesus did. We didn't have enough, and now we had enough. We're the heroes of faith. But if you read in Mark 6, 51 through 52, it says, then Jesus climbed into the boat with them. The wind died down. And they were completely amazed, for they, they had not understood about the loaves. They had no idea what had happened. Their hearts were hardened. It seems that part of Jesus' intention in sending them out is to evangelize them. That kingdom work begins early and often in Jesus' new community. When you're on a mission of mercy, you're not always invited to share with others. In fact, sometimes you're uninvited. Sometimes you're opposed. It's not always easy. And when you're on a mission of mercy, you keep moving until all have heard. If everyone that you know understands the message of Jesus, then you need to get to know some other people (laughs) because missions keeps moving. For the last eight years, Kielpha has met at Erie First um, all over the place in all kinds of different rooms in the summit when it was built. And God has done some amazing, fruitful, unbelievable things. And this fall, in a few weeks actually, we're making a change. We're leaving um, a community that has grown up strong and healthy and tall, uh, full of Christ' followers who who love each other and love uh, Jesus and love figuring out what he's all about. And we're taking a seed of those Fa students and we're planting them on Edinburgh University. And we're gonna meet weekly there, starting the end of August and doing, Worship and a message and all those things that Fa does. And and Joel and I won't be at the summit as much anymore because we're going to go there. We're going to help develop this new plant, this new plant of of students. Why are we doing this? Because we're on a mission of mercy. And because not all those students have heard yet. And missions keeps moving until everyone hears. In 1855, uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, there was a Sunday school teacher by the name of Mr. Kimball. Mr. Kimball had set his heart on the winning of an 18-year-old boy for Christ. So after praying, he decided to visit him at the boot store where he worked as a salesman. And and when Kimball went into the boot store, he found him wrapping up shoes in the back. And he made what he felt was a very weak plea for Christ Uh, in his own uh, admission. He said his words weren't very clear, his conviction wasn't very compelling. He just kind of simply muffled through it and told him of Christ's love for him and, and the love that Christ wanted in return. And in 1855, in the back of that store in Boston, D.L. Moody gave himself and his life to the cause of Christ. Now, if you've never heard of D.L. Moody before, he became one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the church He started one of the greatest missions movements ever. One act in one moment by an average Sunday school teacher, Mr. Kimball in a boot store in Boston, Massachusetts, changed the eternal fate for possibly thousands or millions of people today. I wouldn't be surprised if some of us in this room could trace our spiritual heritage back to that boot store. That's someone who told someone else, who told someone else, who told someone else, and that's why we're sitting in the seat here today. Kimball didn't know Moody would become an evangelist, but he faithfully shared God's redemptive message with the people in his life. And honestly, it's amazing what D.L. Moody has done, how he has shared the message of hope with thousands of people. That is amazing. But the mission of mercy that we're on is only measured one way. God says go after that one lost coin, that one lost sheep, that one lost son. It's about the one. It's about each person, each heart, each life, not the masses. This is God's idea. You know, you're here because someone told you about God's love, and someone told you because someone told them. And our role in God's kingdom isn't insignificant. It's imperative. There's a movie, it's a little bit old, but it's called, I'm Saving Private Ryan. And Tom Hanks plays an army captain who's put in charge on a special mission to save Private Ryan. That's where they got the title. And Ryan's brothers, they've all been killed in different battles during this short period of time and only he survives among his siblings. So the military decides that Private Ryan must be located and returned safely home to his family. But the search isn't easy. It's not convenient. Many of the men in the group that are looking for Ryan are shot and killed along the way. The cost is incredibly high. And at one point in the movie, um, the, the character played by Tom Hanks looks at his men in frustration and he says, this Ryan had better be worth it. He, he better be a genius or something. He better live a long life and do something like in, in, uh, invent a longer lasting light bulb or something like that. Miller and his group sacrificed much for Private Ryan. In fact, some of them died so that Ryan could live. And their deaths for Private Ryan were not based on anything good in Private Ryan. It was a mission of mercy. And finally, they find Private Ryan. But before returning to safety, the captain is shot. And this is just a quick visual of what's happening in the movie. It. Mortally wounded, he looks up at Private Ryan And with his last breath, he picks up from some dirt from the ground And he says to Ryan, earn this We're on a mission of mercy for our family and our friends and our coworkers and the students in our classes or dorms. We're on a mission of mercy, and they're worth it. And it's not because of anything good they have done for us. It's because God looks at the lost and has compassion on them. And Jesus sends us to be an ambassador of compassion. When the captain tells Private Ryan to earn this, I believe he's saying this, it's your turn. It's your turn. It's your turn to protect someone. It's your turn to sacrifice for someone. Those soldiers did it for him, and now it's your turn. It's like passing the proverbial baton. Don't let it stop with you. Earn it. And someone somewhere was on a mission of mercy for you, and that's why you're here. We need to earn it, even when it's not easy or convenient. And those faces and names God has brought you into your life matter. He's asking you to love the people he brings into your life, to love them on purpose, to love them with the great, deep, merciful love that God himself has loved you with. To tell people there's hope for the hopeless, there's rest for the weary, there's mercy, there's healing, there's grace, there's forgiveness, there's love for a broken heart, there's strength to break addiction. And when the whole world is falling in on you, you're not alone. You don't... We have the best message of all time, a life filled with purpose and significance, a life guaranteed to end in victory. And it doesn't have to be hard or complicated or flashy. You don't have to be in full-time ministry on a campus to fulfill this mission. It's simply the act in every way, uh, in every action, in every reaction, in every moment to say to everyone, he loves us. God loves us. He loves us all. On your notes, um, on the green paper, there's a blank space. It says, I'm on a mission for." If you don't have notes, you can do it in your head. And if um, John could come back up, I want you to take a few minutes and just list a few people that came to mind as we talked this morning. Who, who is it that doesn't know? Who is it that needs hope and healing? Who is it that if tragedy struck, you wouldn't be sure of, of their eternity? Who do you need to make sure you don't leave at the zoo? Don't skip this part. (laughs) It's the part that makes faith alive and active inside us. It's the part that God uses to change us. And remember we talked about Jesus' intention is for us to change. You might not want to write down their whole name. Maybe they're just initial. Or maybe you can just list it in your head. But who are you on a mission for? And like I said, if you can't think of anyone then you need to meet some new people. (laughs) Because there's a lot of people out there that don't know the hope and healing that Jesus Christ offers to us. Now, we do this with the college students a lot. And uh, I think what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to pray here in a minute. And um, if you need to leave right after, that's okay. But if some of you, need to sit in your seat and just soak up more of God's message to you. Uh, John's going to play just to kind of give us a focus. Some of you might need to come to the altar and just say, God, renew my mission, renew my mentality, remind me of what it is that I exist for. But please don't leave until you've weighed your mission significantly because the stakes are high. The stakes are high. Jesus, I thank you so much for this morning and for each person that um, came to church today. And God, I believe so much as you have said through the scripture that you have come to seek and to save the lost. And God, we wanna partner with you on that, Father. As that is the biggest thing on your heart, God, I pray that that you would make that the priority of ours. God, that we would fight for the people in our lives. God, that we would love them. And God, that it wouldn't be about the number or the, uh, the... this many people got saved or this many people this, God, but that it would be about this mission of mercy that you've sent us on, God, to just simply extend this amazing, glorious, graceful message, God, that you communicate to us, to other people. God, thank you for giving us the greatest message of all time, a life full of purpose and significance and value. God, empower each of us Give us the words when we need them. Give us the gumption to act when we need to. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.
2: Yeah.
3: how beautiful you are, and how great your affections are for. Me.
2: Oh,
3: how he loves us so. Oh, how he loves us. How he loves us so. Jealous for me he Love's like a hurricane I am a tree Bending beneath The weight of his wind and mercy When all love sudden I am unaware of these afflictions Eclipsed by glory And I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. Oh, how he loves us so. Oh. redemption by the grace in his eyes. If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. So heaven meets earth like a beautiful kiss, and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. And I